Well, good morning, New Hope. My name is Gary Post. If you don't happen to know me, I'm the associate pastor here. Mark and Laura Lee are away for the weekend. Actually, away for the week. They were doing some camping this week. Um, up north, as a matter of fact. So, lots of rain and 40 degree, degree temperatures at night, from what I understand. So, not the ideal week to be in a pop-up camper, but I think they're making the best of it. Uh, today, we'd like to, I'd like to share with you about marriage. And I, I, um, I do this because uh, whenever I preach here, I always kind of try to sense from God. I pray about it. I try to sense from God what he would have me to share. And, uh, and right now, uh, marriage has been on my heart here over the past uh, few months, partly because I spend a lot of time uh, talking with couples and individuals about their marriages and, and uh, things that are going well and, and things that are not going so well. And, do some premarital counseling as well. So it just occurred to me that in our culture, uh, th- there is a kind of an atmosphere of discouragement, discouragement about marriage, and, and I wanted to counter that. This, this morning's uh, message should be for you uh, incredibly full of uh, hope and encouragement for marriage. And uh, <clears throat> uh, upwards of 90% of us will be married at one time or another in our lives, so it's something that pertains to, to just about everybody. And this morning, I'd like to dispel some unfortunate, depressing assumptions that exist in our culture right now about marriage, and then also look at what God says about marriage in, in Scripture, how, how he says it's supposed to work. And, and then thirdly, what are the practical implications of what God says in his word about marriage for how we interact um, as, as couples and as partners within marriage uh, together? And then finally, what are some simple things that we can do in our marriages uh, to make even good marriages better than what they are? Some of you who aren't, aren't yet married will benefit from this as well in, in terms of the kinds of marriage partners you're, you're looking for. But before we get started, let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Uh, dear Father, I... I I thank you for uh, this opportunity this morning to spend with your people. And I'd ask that that you uh, would empower uh, this time this morning, that that you'd speak through me as your weak vessel what you would have people to hear and that you would prepare hearts and that you would impress the truth of your word on our hearts with regard to marriage this morning. And uh, mold us and shape us uh, according to your purposes for each one this morning in a unique way. And I ask this uh, in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I talked with a, uh, a wife recently over the telephone, and she was calling about uh, uh, counseling. She said that uh, she was in a marriage of, um, it seems like it was 15 to 20 years, and um, both of them, they, they said, loved each other and were committed to the marriage, but they were going through a rough patch. They were going through a difficult season in their marriage, and, and she was looking for counsel. She'd been to a secular counselor, and this person uh, said, uh, in essence, uh, it sounds like it's, uh, you know, what you're going through is a lot of work. I just recommend you divorce and start over. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't agree. I, I couldn't disagree more, as a matter of fact. And I, I said, I, I've seen some, some marriages that were in very difficult uh, uh, straits 
on a, from a human perspective that God has redeemed and restored. When, when God weighs in to a marriage relationship, it makes all the difference in a world. He can change hearts and minds from the inside out. And I said I'd encourage you to get some, some different counseling. And, and um, if I can help in any way, I can. And so I pointed her to a, a different uh, counselor. The reason I share that is because uh, I think it's indicative of the, the kind of uh, discouragement, the attitude of discouragement that is present in our culture right now with regard to, to marriage. Uh, we're told, for example, that 50% of marriages will fail, whether they're Christian marriages or not. We're, we're led to believe that most marriages that survive are, are unhappy and, and unfulfilling over the long haul. We know that uh, over 60% of couples that, that uh, are married live together first or, or live together instead of marriage. Most eventually get married. But um, we know that uh, many folks live together before marriage uh, partly because of the fear of failure. They, they feel as if the odds are stacked against them in marriage and, and so they, they don't want to fail so they, they don't marry in the first place. Ironically, the research indicates that Cohabitation before marriage actually decreases the probability that any subsequent marriage will be successful. We know that many couples divorce simply because they're discouraged by the odds. It creates a sense of inevitability. We keep hearing 50% of all marriages fail. You know, am I one out of the two that that are, are going to fail? And sometimes they simply lose hope that their marriage can be saved and, and they, they give up. The conventional wisdom, too, is that the vast majority of remarriages are doomed to, to failure. But, but the reality is that, that most of these depressing assumptions are, are just false. They're not based in fact. Shanti Feldhahn is a, a, a woman who's a, a Harvard-trained social researcher and a, a Christian author and speaker on the subject of marriage. Uh, what I like about her is that is that uh, she, she knows her numbers. As a guy who survived uh, three semesters of advanced quantitative analysis, that is statistics at MSU's grad school, I have an appreciation for people who pay attention to research. And she does a good job with that. She's very meticulous about it. She's rigorous in the way that she approaches the numbers. And so I'm going to share with you some of her research that is good news about marriage today and where we're actually at. But one of the things that she says is that the greatest threat to marriage is not divorce, it's discouragement. It's discouragement. She says that these, when these discouraging assumptions that we just talked about are accepted as fact, and you know how something, something's repeated often enough, it's accepted as fact. When these things are accepted as fact, they can become a self-fulfilling prophecy for couples. And that's why getting the truth out is, is so important. For many couples experiencing difficulty, the crucial factor as to whether their marriage will survive or not is hope. That is the hope that their relationship can be improved or many will simply accept the message of futility that the odds are against them. It won't survive and so they might as well just give up now. Why invest any more time? Today we'll focus on the good news about marriage and some simple ways to make even good marriages better. Uh, one of the pieces of good news uh, about marriages is that the, the vast majority, based on the research that uh, Shanti shares in her books, the, the vast majority of marriages last for a lifetime. That is, 72% of those ever married are, are still married to their first spouse. 
And of the 28% who are not, uh, many, as many as 8% of those are due to the death of a spouse. So uh, the actual divorce rate may be as low as the general divorce rate, that is, across the country and across all age ranges. It may be as low as 20% for first marriages and as low as 33% for remarriages. Even among those married multiple times, the, uh, only 3 in 10 have actually experienced a divorce based on the, the census figures. So obviously a 20% divorce rate is nothing to jump up and down about. Uh, but it is not nearly as dire as, as what we have heard. And then what about this uh, statistic we hear all the time that, that uh, an equal number of Christians, that the divorce rate is the same for Christians as it is for non-Christians? Uh, again, not true. A misunderstanding of the data. Something, that's, uh, something that was an error that's been repeated so many times we've come to accept it as truth. You even hear it in uh, churches from pastors and, and people who should, and, uh, and others. Um, it came out of a 2001 George Barna study where he looked at, uh, at he asked people based on their belief system, uh, are you, uh, uh, and he looked at whether people had been divorced based on their belief system. Are they Christians or not? Well, 80% of the people in the country will tell you that they're, they're Christian. He didn't ask about their practices. What he asked was their belief system. And so he found that there was an equal number divorced. But when they introduced one more factor, that is, did you attend church with your spouse during the previous week, the, the divorce rate, depending on the study, dropped between 25 and 50%. You see, uh, practice makes a huge difference. When you add in uh, Bible reading and, and uh, prayer, if couples are participating together in a supportive faith community, for example, then the, the rate drops into the single digits. So it is, it is far, far lower for uh, people who are making an honest uh, effort to walk with God from day to day with their spouse. For most of you hearing, today, hearing me today who, who uh, are making a heartfelt effort to walk with God from day to day in, in your marriage and who've been married more than a, a decade, your, your chances of divorce are very, very slim. More good news. More marriages, uh, most marriages are actually happy marriages. The, the research indicates that about 80% of the couples queried indicate that they're, they're very happy in their marriages. And furthermore, depending on the study, 90 to 93% of people indicate that they're glad they're married their, they married their spouse, their spouse and would marry them all over again, including those who had considered divorce at one time. This is the one that blows my mind. Uh, among those responding at one point in their marriage history, they responded previously that they were very unhappy. Those folks who stayed together for five years after that point, eight out of ten who avoided divorce and stayed together rated themselves very happy five years later. You see, part of it is a, a function of time, hanging in there um, and, and uh, maintaining the commitment. One, one study of couples whose, marriage, whose marriages were in serious enough trouble that they considered divorce and who stayed together at least seven years, 95% of those responding said they were glad they stayed together. <clears throat> well, what does God say about what makes a marriage work? Well, it's not magic. You know, in our culture, the popular misconception is that it's kind of a fairy tale, that... Um, 
that you're either lucky in love or, or you're not. And, and most of what happens to you in a relationship or in a marriage is really beyond your control. And, and I think that nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is that couples in happy, satisfying marriages do certain things that make those marriages happy and satisfying. And couples in unhappy relationships sometimes inadvertently do things that, that add to the pain. The, the good news is that improving our marriages is, isn't rocket science. There are some simple things that we can do. And there are certainly exceptions. Let, let me say that right out of the gate. Where there's, where there's abuse or, or violence or, or severe psychological problems in one partner or another. Or one partner makes bad choices uh, that, that, that uh, has the effect of ending the relationship. Uh, that, that can certainly happen. But for the vast majority of marriages, the, the kinds of difficulties that married couples go through, uh, those marriages can be saved. We need to check the owner's manual, that is the scripture. God uh, said in, in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. He was the first one who noticed that, by the way. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. And I deliberately use the Holman Christian Standard Bible there because I like that translation. I like the word compliment. We're used to saying, in our translations, we're used to saying a helper suitable for him. The reason I like the word compliment is that it makes the point. The Hebrew word here refers to the woman in the equation as an equal partner. That is, as a, not just a helper, not just an assistant, not just somebody who takes care of the laundry but a powerful partner that comes alongside the man. These are two interlocking pieces that fit together. God has wired us, male and female, to fit together and to complement each other in, in ways that only he fully understands. Uh, but he intended us to do that in marriage. We're, we're halves of a whole, you see? And, and the Hebrew word here for helper means far more than helper in English. It means a powerful partner that brings her own gifts and uh, abilities and capabilities to the task and without whom the tasks of life could not be accomplished. You see, it's that powerful a, a role that the, the woman has in the equation here. God is the one who wired us differently, male and female. He knows best how to make marriages work. What I'd like to, to do is read from Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33 where Paul speaks about marriage. It's going to be up on the screen. It's also in, in the uh, scriptures in your, in your pew rack there. Now, I'll begin with verse 22, but I, I want to note, first of all, that the context here in, in Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about love and what love looks like when it's lived out in the body of Christ, and, and specifically in these verses, what love looks like when it's lived out in a marriage relationship. So you notice uh, he talks about love in chapter 5, and then he says uh, in 5.15, look carefully how you walk, not as, as unwise, but wise. And, and then <clears throat> at the end of uh, 21, he says that the whole context here is submitting one to another within the body of Christ. That's what love looks like when it's lived out. And then he begins with uh, the wives' role. In verse 22, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. His body and his, is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's right out of Genesis. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What he's saying here is that uh, a marriage relationship uh, that is empowered by God, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, where both partners self selflessly love each other is a picture to the world of Christ's relationship with his church and the self-sacrificial love that Christ brings to that role as he leads his church. Now in verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now I want to read, reread the, the first few verses, 23 through 25, 22 through 25, in the message, the message translation, because I think it illuminates what we're talking about with regard to these two roles. And, it, and actually, I use this passage when I, I preach at a wedding as well, because I want people to understand uh, what the wise role looks like, what the husband's role looks like. Uh, beginning at verse 22 in the message translation, wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does for the church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in, in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church. Uh, a love marked by giving, not by getting. Christ's love for the church makes the church whole. His works evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. Dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness, and that is how husbands ought to love their wives. No pressure there, guys. Right? Love your wife like Christ loved the church, sacrificing yourself for her. Put her needs first. I want you to notice something about this passage, and that is that both for husbands and wives, I'm going to begin with wives here, both for husbands and wives, uh, Paul isn't commanding us to feel in a certain way. He doesn't command us to have certain emotions about our partner. He says uh, in verse 33 that he's not, commanding, we're not, he's not commanding wives to feel respect for their husbands, but to act voluntarily in ways toward him that convey respect and support and affirmation for his role as a leader. Same is true as, uh, for husbands, but we'll get to those in a, in a minute. Wives are, are called to support and to leave room for, to leave room for their husbands to lead as spiritual leaders in the home. Uh, wives will sometimes say to me, I wish my husband would lead. And, and you're right, it is his responsibility to take the initiative to lead. But let me ask you a question. What are you doing to affirm and encourage and support him in that role? What are you doing to encourage him to take that leadership role? Part of respecting your husband is encouraging and affirming him as a leader. 
Here's a hard question for you. You're not going to like this. Uh, The question is, uh, what are you doing perhaps unwittingly uh, to discourage him from leadership in in your home? I'm aware of a a situation that I ran across some time ago where a a wife said that uh, she wanted her husband to lead, but, but she criticized every decision. She disparaged her husband in public. She uh, even disparaged his decision-making and his judgment on Facebook and in public when they were uh, with friends together. Well, no man wants to feel inadequate. Let me tell you something about men. No man wants to feel inadequate. Uh, no one wants to feel uh, incompetent. And, and you'll never help a man to lead by treating him in a way that makes him feel like an incompetent failure. That, that will never work. And it's just the opposite of what we need to do in the home in encouraging and uh, affirming uh, men's leadership role. Um, Also, sometimes, ladies, you are get-it-done people. And that's one thing we respect about you as men is that our our wives fill the gaps. When when there's something that that doesn't get done, it's our wives who jump in to do that. And in in some ways, our, our wives also... Uh, jump in sometimes in that spiritual leadership role. When we don't act or don't act quickly enough, when we don't take up that role on our own, our wives will jump in there. And I understand why that happens, but just a caution here. When that becomes a pattern of behavior over a long time in your, in your home, uh, it will discourage your husband from taking that role because uh, he won't compete with you, especially if you're in the situation, as often occurs, where, where uh, you as a, a wife are spiritually more mature. You're further down the road with the Lord in terms of your knowledge and experience than your husband is. He will be intimidated by that. And, and he won't compete with you in that area. So what I'm saying is make room in, in your home for your husband to be a spiritual leader in your home. That's what Paul's asking us to do here. Well, why don't some men lead in the home? Well, many do. It's important to notice that. And there, there are many wonderful spiritual leaders here among the men in this church. Uh, but some men don't don't lead because they had poor role models. You know, you, you, nobody's born a spiritual leader. It, you don't grow up knowing how to do that. It, you watch someone else, and that's how you learn. And what I'm learning is I had a wonderful role model as a dad, but many men did not. What I learned as I talked with guys is that uh, many of their fathers were absent, were preoccupied, were abusive, were violent, were alcoholics, or they were not believers. And, and so they, they weren't in a position to mentor them in that way. So it, it's something we can learn. And, and men can learn to be spiritual leaders in their home. And in fact, that's what we're focused on in many of the men's studies that we do downstairs during the year. And the every man a disciple, or every man a warrior discipleship study that we're doing in small groups that a number of you are leading around the city right now. It teaches men to be spiritual leaders in their home. And when I was going through one of those uh, books the, the second book is on uh, how to be a godly husband and, and father. When I was going through that uh, material with one of the other guys, he said, Gary, if I'd known this stuff 20 years ago, it would have made all the difference in my home. I just didn't, I didn't ever know this stuff before. So, so we can learn. Now, husbands, uh, husbands are called to love our wives sacrificially, put their needs before our own. God has wired men to show our love for our families by protecting and providing for them. And, and one way that uh, we show our love is, is by working long hours in some cases 
uh, to provide material things for our families. And fellas, what our wives sometimes need from us is, is simply more time with us to connect. We, we say, well, we are showing our love. You know, we're, we're, we got our nose to the grindstone. We're working at, hard at a job to provide for our family and build a, a career. And we're doing 70 hours and, and all of that. And we are showing our, that's how we show our love. What we can miss sometimes is, is our wives need uh, more time to connect with us. And they would sometimes uh, sacrifice some of those material things in order to have that, that time with us, that that growth of that emotional bond of love and commitment between us is a function of time spent together. And they would trade the material things sometimes for more time with you. God calls us to be unselfish in the areas of our time, our finances, and our affections. Those three things. And, and if we're selfish in those ways, I always tell young couples in premarital counseling, selfishness is the cancer that eats away at a marriage selflessness is what nurtures and builds it over time and contributes to its longevity. If we're selfish in, in our, uh, with our, regard to our finances or, or with our time or our affections, it, it will erode away the love and commitment that we need to make a marriage work. And in, in one example I'm aware of, a, a, a guy uh, showed me all his uh, exotic hunting gear. He had every gadget and gizmo for hunting that you could imagine. He had a fine collection. Unfortunately, his wife couldn't even pay the utility bills. She hadn't had a new dress in three years. I'm saying that that's selfishness. That's not putting your wife first in, in uh, that area of uh, finance. And it's sin. Frankly, we've been called to be selfless in our relationships with our wives. In another case, a, a guy was so preoccupied with his pursuits, his hobbies, that he sacrificed his marriage. Over time, his family became increasingly distant and resentful because he was preoccupied with something for himself instead of uh, for his family. He wasn't available to them. And so over time, they, they just kind of disowned him. And, and it was sad, uh, but it, it uh, ended the relationship. Uh, selfishness will do that. Part of living with our wives sacrificially is understanding them. And uh, contrary to popular thinking, that can be done, fellas. We, we can understand our, our wives. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I, I would recommend to you a book that I've included on your book list in the program today. And it is, uh, it's called, For Men Only, A Straightforward Guide to the Inner Lives of Women. And understanding the women in our lives. There's one for you too, ladies. The more we understand about the way that we're wired differently, the way that God has designed us differently to respond, uh, the, the more effective we'll be and, and the stronger a relationship that we can build. Um, and so I'd, I'd recommend those to you. N notice now that in verse 33 there, in both cases, uh, both with regard to husbands and wives, we're, we're not called to feel loving and respectful. We're, we're called to act in ways that are loving and respectful toward our partner. Sometimes I'll hear from a wife, uh, well, I, I'm not treating him with respect until he starts to behave in a way that is worthy of respect, that deserves respect. And I'll, I'll hear from a husband, well, uh, I'm not going to start loving her until she stops being cranky with me and, and, starts, and starts acting in a way that is more lovable. 
Friends, that's what the world does. That's the 50-50 relationship. You do for me, I do for you. When you stop making me happy and pleasing me, then I'm out of here. That's the way the world operates. It's a contract, you see. And you meet my needs and you're okay. If you don't, uh, we're on thin ice. God calls us to something higher than that. He, he says He says that we need to act with unconditional love and respect. Whether or not it's reciprocated. Unconditional respect, encouragement, and affirmation, whether it's de- deserved or not. Unconditional love whether that person is lovable or not. And what we're guaranteed is that the feelings will follow. You see, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. We're commanded to act in the way that God has has asked us to. And and then the Holy Spirit will fill in the blanks. The Holy Spirit will cause the emotion to follow. If you act in a respectful way, uh, that person will uh, begin to deserve that respect. That's God's business. And and then uh, we will begin to feel the respect if we act that out. None of this can be done on a human level. And, and that's why it's important to, to have God empower our marriages. And we need to pray for our partners, pray for our marriages, and, and bring to bear the power of God in, in our marriages because that's not something, that kind of love and character can't be done on a natural level by human beings. We need God's help for that. There are some marriage killers. Dr. John Gottman is a preeminent uh, psychologist, a marriage and family therapist. He says what he, what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These are, are the things that tear apart a relationship. They're very destructive, lethal to the re- relationships. First of all, criticism. That is attacking your partner's personality or character. Not just the behavior, but the personality or character, usually with the intent of making somebody right or wrong. You see, it, it's a win-lose kind of an approach to things criticizing the person rather than the behavior, often accompanied by phrases like, you always, you never, you're you're the type of person who you fill in the blank, or why are you so, you fill in the blank again. Proverbs 18.1 says that that the power of life and death is in the tongue. You see, our words to our partner either affirm and encourage that person and build them up, or they tear them down, one or the other. Contempt is a second horseman, attacking your partner's sense of self with the attention to insult or to psychologically abuse that person, often accompanied by name-calling. You idiot, you lazy moron, Um, hostile humor, sarcasm, sneering, disdain. The the unspoken message is, I don't like you. And and in fact, I don't want the best for you. It's a message of contempt and, and disdain. It's very destructive to the love and commitment that we need to have in our relationships. There's defensiveness is a third one. Seeing oneself as as the victim, warding off a perceived attack, uh, making excuses. It's not my fault. Happened because of circumstances beyond my control. And then it devolves into attacking the other person. They're attacking me, so I attack them, and I'm on an accusation as well. And the conflict escalates. And you can see why that would be destructive. Somebody has to stop that cycle and be the big person. The final horseman is, is stonewalling, withdrawing from the relationship as a way to avoid conflict, using silence and distance as a weapon in that relationship uh, to, to hurt and to abuse the other person. Those are the four horsemen that can destroy a relationship from the inside out. Now let me share with you on the flip side uh, some of the research that's been done on, 
on what makes happy marriages happy and long-lasting. Shanti Feldhahn, again, uh, researched uh, highly happy couples and what they were doing well that, that helped their marriages to be fun and fulfilling and successful. First of all, choose to view your marriage as a covenant instead of a contract. Our culture views it as a contract. In other words, uh, if you treat me well and if you please me and make me happy, I'll stay with you. If not, I'm out of here. That's a contractual approach. If you fail to hold up your end or stop making me happy, I'm not going (laughs) to remain in this relationship. But God says, rejoice in the wife of your, your youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. He calls us to see marriage as, as a covenant that is a, a lifelong commitment that's unconditional and it's forever. Everett Worthington is an eminent uh, family and uh, marriage therapist and uh, psychologist. He wrote the book, The Hope-Focused, Hope-Focused Marriage Counseling. He says this about covenants versus contracts. People who enter marriage thinking of it as a contract will usually be disappointed On many occasions, both parties will fail to live up to their end of the implicit agreement. That is simply the nature of human existence. However, people who view marriage as a lifelong covenant that depends on their own pledge and honor, not their partner's perfect adherence to a a contract, can better tolerate the inevitable misunderstandings. Furthermore, the covenantal understanding of marriage promotes devotion. Partners expect to be together. Therefore, a covenantal view of marriage actually results in fewer breaches of the implicit contract. You see, a a contractual view of marriage says this is a test drive. It's temporary. I'm I'm here um, as long as I'm happy. But what a covenant says is I own this for life. I'm committed to you for the long haul, and I'll be here. The second thing is that that, uh, highly happy couples do is they choose to make God the center of their marriage. Dr. Brad Wilcox, who's the the director of the National Marriage Project at University of Virginia, found couples in which both partners agree that God is at the center of our marriage are twice as likely to report that they're very happy than those who do not agree. Shanti Feldham uh, follows that up. She says, highly happy couples tend to put God at the center of their marriage and focus on him rather than than on their marriage or their spouse for fulfillment and happiness. You see, if we expect to find ultimate fulfillment and happiness in another person, we're, we're bound to be disappointed. We can only find that ultimate satisfaction and that ultimate fulfillment in God. There, there's a gap in us that uh, requires God to fill that. What does it look like to put God at the center of your marriage in a practical way? Well, these couples worship together. They plugged into a, they're plugged into a, a supportive faith community together. They share key biblical key biblical values. They focus on serving their partners rather than on being served. And they look to God for the power to be selfless because they know it doesn't come naturally. And they pray with and for each other and they trust God for the outcome. And I'd add that one of the other important factors that I see in, in couples is that they have an ongoing relationship with God on a personal level. They walk with God from day to day. They spend time in the Word each day and, and in prayer with God. They have a close relationship with God. And I always ask marriage partners who are in crisis, uh, how's your walk with God? How is your devotional life? How, how, did, how is your relationship with God from day to day? It's never good. It's never good. Uh, because distance from God means distance from your spouse. And time 
getting closer to God will result in a, a closeness to your, your spouse. Thirdly, choose to believe the best about your partner. Shanti Feldhahn's research indicates that 95% of marriage partners carry, care deeply about their spouses and, and want the best for them, but only half of those spouses actually perceive that and, and believe that. Uh, and that gap points to the need to walk the talk, doesn't it? As marriage partners, we need to walk the talk. We need to live that out uh, toward our partners so that they, they perceive it. What we choose to believe about our partner is a crucial factor in uh, happy marriage. Uh, highly happy spouses choose to believe that their mate cares for them. No matter what they're seeing from their spouse or feeling at the time, and they act accordingly. So in other words, if, uh, if your wife or your husband is a little snarky with you when they go out the door in the morning, uh, you can overlook that because you know that they're for you. you. You know that there's an overwhelming love and commitment and they want the best from you, even though they didn't reflect that in their behavior right at the moment. And what's closely related is, is choosing to love and forgive. Highly happy couples choose to love and forgive. Well, God commands us to do that specifically uh, between each other and then starting in our marriages. He says in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord God has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Couples with long-term successful marriages uh, Everett Worthington, again, says couples with long-term successful marriages has identif- have identified forgiveness as one of the top three qualities that are responsible for those marriages. Forgiveness is so important. Forgiveness and love are mutually dependent on each other. You can't have one without the other. Erwin McManus says, bitterness is the enemy of love because it makes you unforgiving and unwilling to give love unconditionally. It's the enemy of hope because you keep living in the past and because you become incapable of seeing a better future. Don't wait till they ask for it. Don't wait till they deserve it. Be the first to forgive. I told a wife recently, you know, you just need to forgive him. Not just for him, but for you so that you can heal and so that you can go on. Because... uh, Unforgiveness morphs into bitterness over time, and bitterness is paralyzing. And it becomes sometimes more important to nurture that bitterness than it does to save the marriage. We lose perspective on what's most important if we don't forgive. On the flip side, Dr. Brad Wilcox found that generosity is the key to long-term marital happiness. Marital generosity is one of the greatest contributing factors to happy marriages. Generosity is defined as being when one partner will simply do nice things for the other, getting nothing in return. I was asking Corrine uh, this morning, our bass player. She was just married a short time ago, and I, I asked her, what, you know, what have you learned uh, since you've been married? And she said, well, you know, one of the things I didn't expect was that there's just this give and take. There are seasons when he's busy with his work that I have to step up and do more, and there are seasons when, when I'm in a crunch that, that, that he steps up and does more. We, we kind of go beyond the halfway point in, in uh, meeting each other's needs in that way. And I thought that's a great insight. That's a great illustration of generosity in marriage. 
There, it means small acts of kindness. It means expressing admiration for your partner, expressing respect for your partner, forgiving your spouses for something that's small. You know, we can choose whether or not we take offense, can't we? We can choose to overlook something. And that's what God calls us to do sometimes, to be generous in that way. And then we need to choose to cultivate our friendship. If you don't hear anything else that I'm, I'm saying this morning, uh, hear this, that friendship is one of the most critical factors and the most critical predictors in long-term marital happiness and longevity. I always ask couples in premarital counseling, um, how did you meet? And, uh, and did you become friends? What I want to hear is that they became friends before they became involved romantically because uh, God's design is, is friendship is in this order. Friendship and then romance and then marriage and then sexual intimacy and, and a long-term marriage relationship. Our culture has that order wrong. And what you see in our culture uh, right now many times is, uh, is based on physical attraction first. It begins with physical attraction and then it, uh, it goes to sexual intimacy and, and then it, it goes to an attempt at a relationship which usually winds up with uh, disillusionment and, and failure. It's out of order. It violates God's design for relationships. What happens is people, um, after the initial thrill has worn off, a couple months later they wake up next to somebody in bed in the morning and, and realize that not only don't they know this person, they don't even like this person. You see? The friendship has an, had an opportunity to, to uh, develop and be cultivated before they attempt the rest of the relationship. And it always ends badly. Brad Wilcox says in his research on friendship and marriage, that happy couples hang out together. Get this. Friendship comes from happy couples hanging out together. Married couples who spent some sort of time talking or sharing an activity at least once a week were five times more likely to be very happy in their marriages than those who, who don't. Happiness comes from cultivating the friendship that we had when we began the relationship. And it comes from spending time together. It's a function of time together. You, you can't get away from it. Shanti says, highly happy couples aren't just spending time together because they're happy. A big part of the reason that they're happy is because they're spending time together. Friendship builds on an emotional bond of love and commitment that we share in a marriage relationship. That's why it's so important. Question for you. Do you sense distance in your relationship, especially if you've been married a long time? And you have a lot of other things you're busy with in your, in your lives. Do you sense distance developing in your relationship? Are you growing apart? If that's the case, I would ask, how much time do you spend together? Are you so busy with other things, kids included, that you don't spend any eyeball-to-eyeball time together any, anymore? One counselor has a prescription that she gives, counsels, uh, she gives uh, couples who are feeling distance in their relationship. She says, here's what I need you to do over the next two weeks. I need you to spend 30 minutes a day eyeball-to-eyeball time interacting. You can be doing some activity together, but no TV, no negative conversation. I just need you to interact over the next 30, uh, uh, 30 minutes a day over the next two weeks. And one two-hour date night each week. And couples come back after three weeks and they say, "Uh, you know, we're doing a lot better, but we don't know why. And she says it's a function of time, time together. 
cultivates that friendship. She says, if a couple's not willing to spend quality time together, I can't help them. They might as well go on down the road because that's what it takes. Well, finally, there are some small things that we can choose to do to make a big difference in our marriage relationships. And uh, what Shanti came up with when she interviewed husbands and wives, she asked them about the kinds of things that, that they would like to see from their spouse, the things that made the most difference in their relationship. And this is what she came up with. First of all, the fantastic five for him, things that wives can do for us. Uh, first of all, she notices his effort and sincerely thanks him for it. One of the guys I was going through the discipleship stuff with said to me, his wife uh, said to him not long ago, um, you know, with all the difficult stuff we've gone through, the tough stuff, she said, you've never given up. I really admire that about you. And he said, that made me feel so good. That's what we're talking about. She says, you did a great job at this or that. That seems like a small thing, but we need to hear that from each other. She mentions in front of others something he did well. You know, I was talking with a a neighbor up north recently. Her name is Jennifer. She said to me about her husband, Mike is the smartest guy I know. You see, she, she looks up to her husband and admires him in that way. She tells other people about it. Uh, she shows that she desires him sexually and that he pleases her. Um, some of you may suspect that the guys prompted me to put this in here, and that's not the case. Uh, it's part of the research. Uh, Shanti asked a men what was most important to them, and, and she says that the, the reason why it's most important is, is not from the physical aspect so much, but because it's an important part of that emotional bond that's built between a husband and a wife, and that can only happen in this way. She makes it clear to him that he makes her happy. Uh, about 20-some years ago, Jean and I were building a, uh, a house in the south side of Lansing, and it was just, uh, I think it was just basement and sticks probably at that time. But I can, I can still remember, I said to Jean the other day, I can still remember when she's standing in the middle of that, and she said, wow, I, I never dreamed that we would live in a house this nice. And I still remember that because it made me feel so good that I could please my wife in that, that way. Notice that that fantastic five for him are all about respect. They're all manifestations of respect. You see, it circles us right back to Ephesians 5 again. That's what men need out of the relationship is respect and admiration and support and affirmation from their wives. Fantastic five for her. He takes her hand when walking through a parking lot or at the movies. How many of you ladies here like it when your husband takes your hand? How many of you? Just raise your hand. How many of you like it when your husband takes your hand? Okay. How many of you don't like it when your husband takes your hand? See, I rest my case. Yeah, our wives like that. He leaves her a voicemail, email or text to let her know he's thinking of her. He puts his arm around her or his hand on her knee when in public together. He tells her sincerely that she is beautiful. He pulls himself out of a funk when he's upset instead of withdrawing emotionally. You know how guys, uh, if we're upset about something, we can just wander off into our cave? Yeah. Well, she says, I I like it when he doesn't do that, when he just uh, regroups and reengages instead of doing that. I I love that about him when he does that. All simple things we can do. Notice that these things for the wives, go back to Ephesians 5. These things for the wives, again, are, are all manifestations of love, aren't they? Because that's what women need most out of that relationship. All simple things that we can do. Now, a world record for you to shoot for here. In closing, Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher hold the Guinness world record for the longest marriage. 
They were married May 13, 1924. You see their wedding picture right there. And they broke the record in 2008 after 84 years of marriage. Herbert died in 2011 at age 105 after they had been married 87 years. Do the math. Zelmira died almost exactly two years later at age 105 in 2013. Uh, toward the end of their marriage, they were asked for some pointers. W what can you tell the rest of us about what goes into building a, a long-lasting, happy, fulfilling marriage? Zelmira was asked, how did you know he was the right one? And she said, we grew up together. We were best friends before we married. A friend is for life, and our marriage has lasted a lifetime. She was also asked, what's the one thing that you have in common that transcends everything else? She said, we're both Christians. We believe in God. Marriage is a commitment to the Lord. We pray with and for each other every day. You see, it comes back to friendship. It, come back, it comes back to putting God at the center of our marriages once again. Now, they're undoubtedly holding hands in heaven right now as we speak, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to, to meeting them. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for uh, the marriages that are represented here in our New Hope family. We thank, those, we thank you for those that are yet to be that you know about and, and we don't. We pray that you'll impress our word, your word on our hearts today, that you'll mold and shape our marriage relationships into those that honor you and, and so that, uh, that the love that we share between us and the commitment that we share between us will be a light in a dark world, that people will look at our marriages empowered by the Holy Spirit and they'll say, what have they got going for them? And, and that they, they will glorify God and, and that they'll want to come to Jesus because of the, the love that they see us share in our marriage relationships. And, and we pray all of this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.